Hey everyone, welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is David Marvin, founder of Marvin & Palmer, an investment management firm he started in 1986. David started his career as a truck repo man, then with no experience moved into the world of investments before ultimately starting his own firm at the age of 46. David, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Your background is fascinating, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so for our conversation, I actually interviewed the guys that make this beer on one of the programs. We did a live podcast a few months ago, and it was TSP, Two Stones uh, Pub. Uh, I'm going to be drinking their, their collaboration with Wawa, which is called the Mocha Latte Stout. So I'll give it a, a rating at the end. Now, I know you are, uh, you're going to be enjoying a Diet Pepsi. Is that right? I'm, I've got a Diet Pepsi here, so that's, that's mine. Perfect. Well, cheers. Cheers to you. Well, let's start off with, tell me a little bit about what your company is and what you guys do. Our company is, as you mentioned, it's an investment company dealing in equities. And uh, then we have two strategies that are more focused or more different than most people have. One of them is called Global Opportunities, which involves investing all over the world. And in equities, some of the times we use countries as with ETFs. Mm -hmm. And the other is a, a strategy focusing on Southeast Asia, oh, wow. which, is, which is one of the prime areas outside of the states in terms of investment opportunity. Yeah, for sure. That, that's for sure. So you had a pretty humble upbringing. You grew up in Chicago. Is that right? I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and my parents were poor. I went mm -hmm. to one of the, I was in Downers Grove, Illinois, and I went to the local schools. Uh, I graduated from Downers Grove and went on to the University of Illinois, where I met my wife eventually. Oh, wow. And uh, so we we're both Illini, so to speak. She didn't graduate because we were, we got married right after I graduated. Okay. And we were, we were, you know, we were extremely young. I was 22. She was 21. Wow. And, uh. But we were both poor. We both had jobs when we were in college. I worked my way uh, pl playing and teaching the organ. I used to play church services all over the state of Illinois, sometimes into, into uh, Iowa or Indiana. And I also played in the cocktail lounge in the summer, wow. as well as at Christmas. And I was a pretty good musician. Yeah. But I chose not to be a musician for my career. And uh, I'm, I'm happy that I didn't choose music. Yeah. So you, you played the organ to pay your way through college and graduate school? Yeah, it was better than a meal job. Yeah. Most other, you know, most other kids who didn't have any money, they had to work somehow. Yeah. And the, the typical way was having a meal job at a sorority or fraternity or whatever. And I was lucky enough to be able to make a little more money by teaching and playing. Yeah, that's great. What made you decide not to pursue uh, a, a career in music? I didn't love it enough. Plus, it's really a tough business. Yeah. I mean, the music business is tough. If you're if you're an entertainer, you're playing at nights and weekends and you're very exposed to becoming an alcoholic. True. And, and which I didn't want to become. Yeah. And, and second of all, if you have a family, you're working evenings. Yeah. And, and when you're working evenings, it's tough to be with your family. That is a tough business for, for having a, a wife and kids, for sure. Yeah. Now, I heard from uh, your grandson that you weren't the best student at the uh, University of Illinois. I was never the best student uh, at, at all, whether it was grade school, high school, 
college, I was always, I got by. Yeah. I made National Honor Society in high school, but I, I just got by. I, sure. They always said he didn't work up to potential, and I didn't. <laughs> but in college, I had more of an excuse because I really was working a lot. Right. You know, to basically put myself through. Uh, but in any in any case, whether I worked or not, uh, I, I didn't apply myself because I certainly could have. Yeah. Well, you did go to Northwestern for graduate school, and that's no slouch of a school. So how did you how did you manage that? I was lucky to get in there. Basically, one of my good friends told me I needed to go back to graduate school to really get on the right track out in corporate America. Yeah. And uh, so I looked into graduate schools and I was already married and I'd already uh, gone into the army. Uh, I was about to get drafted. So I joined the reserves. It was pre-Vietnam so you could get in. Ah. But in any case, I, I, so I was doing the reserves and I was you know, married and working. And, and uh, he said, uh, you know, you really need to go to grad school. So I looked at uh, three schools. I looked at the University of Illinois, and they said, anybody below 3.5 need not apply. And that was me. So <laughs> then I looked at Roosevelt University, and they said, uh, and I applied there, and they let me in on probation. And then I looked at Northwestern, and they said it was a combination of your GMATs and an interview. Uh -huh. I always do real well on those GMAT type tests. So uh, I, I took the test, did real well, and I interviewed them. They somehow thought that maybe here was a guy who hadn't worked up to his potential. Oh. And they just plain old let me in. Wow. And I was thrilled because it was a great school. It was sure. a great school. Yeah, absolutely. And it took me about two and a half years going right around the clock at night because I went to summer school, regular school, and and it was really, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life than doing that and having a job and being in the reserves all at the same time. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty full plate. And by the way, I got great, I had really good grades at Northwestern. You know, there's that old, there, there's that old uh, adage about, you know, your grades when you're overscheduled or you have a lot of activities, you know, the, the you see in high school and college, college athletes in season typically get better grades than out of season because their day is so structured and they have to really commit to being prepared for every aspect of their lives. It kind of seems like that's what happened to you. Well, I'd say that in maturity. Yeah. I was, you know, when I look back, I was extremely immature because I didn't understand the importance of, of getting good grades, that it was about showing discipline and understanding. Anyway, I matured because I was married. And yeah. eventually, I eventually, before we got out, we had our first child. So there's, there's a lot of maturing that you do when that happens. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and a lot of incentive to do well when, yep. once you have a, an extra mouth to feed, for sure. Well, you started your professional career repossessing trucks, which I find fascinating. I'm sure you have great stories about that. Yeah, it was the only thing I could do when I got out with my undergraduate degree because uh, no, no company really wanted me based upon what I had achieved, which wasn't much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> So I got a job with International Harvester chasing after people who hadn't paid their bills, including individual truckers. And uh, I did that for about a, you know, a year and a half, two years. And I had my army in between. But uh, when I, once I went back to school and learned that there were other opportunities out there besides truck repossessing, uh, I, I said to myself, boy, oh boy, I better really work hard because I'd love to get into one of these great, great opportunities, which yeah. I did. That's, that's great. So you transitioned your career into investments, but you had absolutely no 
experience with investments. How did you end up in the world of investments? Well, I was kind of guided by one of the counselors at Northwestern, one of my professors at Northwestern, in terms of telling me about the opportunity, as well as this close friend who, uh, who basically told me I needed to get my MBA. And the, 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 the net of it all was I had two opportunities while I was midway through my MBA program. One was at Hornblower, Hornblower and Weeks, mm-hmm. which was a retail firm and as an analyst. And the other was with Chicago Title and Trust. And I went in there to interview, interview Chicago Title and Trust. And luckily the guy interviewing me didn't know much about investments because he was a lawyer. <laughs> and, and so he interviewed me and asked me a few investment questions and he liked me. We talked mostly about the Cubs. <laughs> then he, he passed me on to my ultimate boss who liked me. See, he, you know, I seemed like I was a bright kid and I was going to do, seemed like I was doing well in school. So they hired me and that got me into the investment business. And within a week, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. I didn't believe there were jobs like that. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden they were paying me to read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and to keep up with what was going on in the world and somehow relate that to stocks. It was completely foreign to me because I'd never been exposed to that. That's amazing. So, and you just really kind of- I took to it. Yeah. I took to it like a duck to water. And, yeah. and it's, you know, and I, I finally found, oh my God, this is what I want to do with my life, I think. Yeah, and I, and I did really well, and 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 I started looking for a job at, at a at a bigger investment firm, mm-hmm. and uh, I was lucky enough to go up to IDS in Minneapolis, which was the biggest in the country at the time. It was the biggest mutual fund operation. Wow! This this was in the uh, the late sixties, and they had about seven billion dollars, and they were about three or four times bigger than the next biggest competitor. Amazing. And, and I mean, people like Fidelity had a couple billion and Capital Group had one billion and they had seven. And and they were, but interestingly enough, this was this was when they had uh, fixed commissions. Oh yeah. So the seven billion at that time was more like having a hundred billion a day because of the commissions that were, that it were achieved when you did trades. Yeah. So everybody on Wall Street would come in and, oh, they thought I was important. And I was. Right. I hadn't been very important at Chicago Title, but I was really important there. And oh, my God. But I knew it wasn't me. I knew it had to be the firm. But it was yeah. like going from Class D baseball to the major leagues. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very impressive and important, though, uh, mm-hmm. when you're when you're sort of at that big company, people want access to you. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, I was, if you let me ramble a little, I sure I was, I was lucky enough as an analyst to pick a few good stocks for the portfolios and the Weyerhaeuser, Georgia Pacific and Longview Fiber to name three. Yeah. And uh, they had a bear market in 69, 70, and they decided that the, the portfolio guys who were doing the job weren't doing it and they got fired and they promoted a few of the analysts who seemed bright. And I was one of them. So I got promoted into the largest mutual fund in the world as an assistant. Wow. And I did that for about uh, three years. And then they promoted me to be the head honcho. So all of a sudden, I, you know, eight years or however many years it was into my investment career, couldn't have been more than seven or eight. Yeah. All of a sudden, I'm running the largest mutual fund in the country. And I'm 33 years old. That's incredible. And it, it was. And what was really incredible is I got lucky because in the bear market of 73, 74, 
there was a group of stocks called the Nifty 50. Yeah. And that was like the FANG stocks in the latest market cycle. You know, it was it was the all of the stocks were going to grow forever. Yeah. Anyway, I, I sold them all. My partner and I sold them all. My assistant, because I was now the head honcho. And, and uh, we sold all those, those stocks and we got into a bunch of basic industry type stocks. And it turned out in the bear market, just like the fangs recently got killed. Sure. 50-50 got killed. And all of my stocks or all of our stocks did well. And all of a sudden, people thought I was brilliant because we had one of the best performing funds in the country. Sure. It was a huge fund. Yeah. It was actually the biggest fund in the world that was all equities. And so DuPont was looking for somebody to run their, their pension fund because they'd had a bad experience because they, they'd stayed with the Nifty 50. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, so I was one of the people that got trotted in front of DuPont and they liked me and I got hired at 35 to come out here to, to Wilmington, Delaware. And I hardly knew where Delaware was. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, that's my story. So I want to go back to you, you selling the, the nifty 50. So when you're, when you decide that that's what you're going to do, it seemed at, at the, at the time you're kind of flying in the face of uh, common thought, right? Did you get any backlash? Oh, from I, that? I got massive, massive arguments from my other fund managers and associates who were running other growth products and all the rest. And yeah. there's no doubt that if I'd have been wrong, I'd have been fired. Right. So I basically, but, but at, my, at my age, I was, you know, young and you, when you're young and naive, you do a lot of things that, you know, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't do it all at once because I knew if I did it all at once, they'd stop me. Yeah. So what I did is I used the old salami technique. You cut a couple slices, you know, and eat it and taste it and take, <laughs> take a little bit. And then you cut a couple more slices. And I so, slowly salamied out of all of the nifty 50. And I salamied into this new basic industry group of stocks. And, and it, then it started to work. And instead of yelling at me, the people started asking me what I was doing and why. Yeah. Pretty soon I was the hero of the shop because I was leading him into this new direction. And, uh, you know, it was really lucky because the timing was right. Yeah. When you get timing right in the investment business, you're incredibly lucky, no matter how smart you are. Sure. Timing yeah. is, the, is the bugaboo of all investors. It's really hard to get it right. Definitely. So you're you're in your mid thirties now, and you move out to Wilmington, Delaware, to run Dupont's yeah, pension. Yeah, well, I got I got mentioned by by the investment banker for Dupont, which was uh, Morgan Stanley, and they put me in front. They they, they had another four candidates to put us in front of the finance committee at Dupont, and uh, I think their first choice, who turned out to be an incredible investor, he was out in Los Angeles. In any case, he didn't want to come because he had teenage kids. He didn't want to upset him. Yeah. And, and uh, he eventually left his firm and formed his own firm. But in any, in any case, he was 12, 15 years older than I was. But, but so I was the next choice because I seemed like I was smart. There's nothing like being right in the market to look like you're smart. <laughs> you know, I mean, they don't know whether you're smart or not. All I can see are the results. Right. It's, it's like a, a, a ba in baseball, using that analogy, a kid comes up as a rookie and he's hitting 350. Yeah. And pretty soon by August or September, or the whole season's going on, I say, my God, he's fantastic. Yep. And so all of a sudden, everybody wants him. Well, that's kind of what happened to me. I got lucky. I got on a hot streak. I was I was hitting every all the balls, so to speak. Well, well that's great. I mean, that, you know, they always say sometimes it's better to be lucky than be good. It doesn't sound like uh, it sounds like you had a combination of the two. 
I did. Yeah. In any case, when I got to DuPont, I, I, I met a bunch of, it, by the way, my DuPont experience was very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm fa- I would love to hear about this. Because first of all, I was too young for the job. I should have been 10 or 15 years older. Yeah. And I reported directly into the finance committee of the board, as well as to the president of the company. So when you report to power, you're powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I did that. And, and uh, I, I developed, I brought in some people, some outsiders, including Palmer, who's part of Marvin and Palmer. Yeah. I, got, I went back to Minneapolis and grabbed him and brought him out and, and uh, reluctantly, because he didn't really want to leave the Midwest. Yeah. And, and uh, but in any case, we built up a very professional operation at DuPont. But what I found was so interesting is in the investment business, nobody really respects hierarchy. The investment business is kind of a free for all. Yeah, it's the best ideas. It's like a like a young hitter doesn't have to put up with a with a thirty two year old poor hitter. Yes, you know, he he's twenty two and he's smart because he's a great hitter. Yeah, and, and it was just kind of the same. In any case, I, I'm out of the investment business, but Dupont was structured. They they you know Dupont and General Motors, no, they were much more structured. It was more more call it along more military type lines. Sure. Where the colonel basically is the boss of the major and the major is the boss of the lieutenant and the sergeants. In any case, it wasn't exactly perfect for me because I was too freeform. Yeah. I, I'd gotten ahead by being freeform and, you know, and so it wasn't a natural fit for me and DuPont. I did a good job. And it, during the early 80s, I ran into a period where I couldn't perform great. Yeah. And then I got really, really hot towards the end. But by that time, I decided I needed to leave DuPont. And uh, and some of the wonderful people that were there. There yeah. was a man by the name of Ur Shapiro, who was the CEO of DuPont, who hired me. One of the great men I've ever met in life. And wow. every, every occasionally, as you get to go, as you go through life, you meet people that are really outstanding. Yeah. And he was one of them. And he really helped me when I formed my new firm. Yeah. So I, I have to go back and say, with my experience with DuPont is they had really high quality people. And they, from my, my, my judgment is they were a little too structured. Sure. To be super successful. They weren't entrepreneurial enough. Yeah. Or they had been hugely successful. So who am I to criticize? <laughs> well, you you mean, on the one hand, you have what's probably a great paycheck coming in. You've got three kids at the time. Mm-hmm. You, you now yeah, have three, three kids three. at the time. Yes. Um, you have a great paycheck. And you, a lot of great entrepreneurs start their business. not They're willing to give up that steady paycheck in order to have more control over their lives. So it seems like that's what made you sort of decide to jump out onto your own. I, I don't know. The, the problem is when I was 45, when I made the decision, I yeah. just turned 46 when we started the company, but I'd already made the decision in the last six to nine months. Right. And, and I had, I had one child of, in college and I had two others in private school in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of money you have to pay out. And I didn't have family money. Sure. The grandparents weren't paying for the tuition <laughs> I was. And, and, and so, honest to God, you have to say, do I have enough money to start a new venture? Mm-hmm. And can I afford to pay for my kids' education? And so all of those things you balance. 
in any case, we, we made the decision we went. And if I had known what was coming 15 months later, yeah, never would have done it because it was the 87 market crash. I was going to ask you about we that. We were building our business nicely and we're, I don't know, we were up to 130 or $40 million for having started with 20. Yeah. And uh, we're on our way to 200. And all of a sudden, we, we went from 140 down to 90. And we, we didn't lose any clients. We just the market declined. Yeah, sure. Oh, my God. You talk about taking your breath away. Yeah. And, that Black and, Monday, right? That was Black no Monday. taking your money away. Yeah, right. So, how, uh, we had to cut our salaries. We had to raise money from ourselves. It was a horrible, horrible experience. And yet it was, even though, though it was soul searching, we did it. And son of a gun, we somehow survived because a couple of different people came in and gave us some money. And we slowly dug out of the hole we were in. Yeah. And got back up. It, it took us five years to get up to 500 million, which was our goal. We get the 500 million to a billion in five years. And we got to the very bottom of it in five years. Wow. So at that level, we could finally live. Yeah. And, and well, then believe it or not, in one year, we went from 500 to a billion. In one year, we doubled. And it was like, oh my God, why couldn't it have happened earlier? But, <laughs> but as, you, as, as I said earlier, timing is impossible to ever get right. Yeah, and things happen. And the one thing about being an entrepreneur, which is the gist of all of this, when you're an entrepreneur, the only person who's normally behind you is you. Mm -hmm. You don't have the big company with the big, you know, the big checkbook and the bank account. Yep, it's just you. Yep. And oh boy, you learn you learn quickly as you run into these problems that you better be cautious. Yep. So what you always, what you really learn to do is you learn to do what I guess the pilgrims did and all, all the rest. You work hard, but you save. Yes. You save and you save because you need a cushion there. Yep. Because you never know when something bad is going to happen. Yeah. When things, when things hit the fan, uh, you're the last person to get paid when you own the company. So yeah, that is so fascinating that you had that really difficult time 15 months in. I'm sure in some ways that made you guys way better as business owners, but I'm interested in doubling in one year. I, I've talked to a lot of the different entrepreneurs on this show and, and we talk about growing pains where sudden growth can be as painful as you know, try, kind of trying to grind it out. Did you experience any uh, growing pains by growing so fast uh, from a business standpoint? We really didn't, because in the investment business, the growth occurs two ways. One, you can get new accounts, or two, the market can go up. Sure. And so we had a combination of both. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and new accounts are easy to handle because basically you're running strategies. Sure. And you're running the same strategy for them as everybody else. So we did not have the growing pains. That, basically, the pains we've had as an entrepreneur over our career is, is when something untoward all of a sudden happens and yeah. you have to downsize. Yeah. Downsizing is horrible because first of all, it's your money and you, and it's, it's so hard to accumulate. Then when you do accumulate money, if you have a bad thing, the question is, do you keep everybody? Do you cut their salaries? Mm -hmm. What, what do you do? Luckily in the investment business, you have a small fixed salary and a big bonus if you're lucky. Sure. That the business works that way. The reason yep. it works on big bonuses 
is because they can't afford to pay out big salaries like corporations do. That's right. So this, the, the salaries are always way below what you would get for a corporation. Yeah. But the bonuses might easily be three or five times or more. Right. You get it. So, so it's just a different way of, of, of operating and you yep. learn to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I find it interesting that you uh, your sons came into, into your business with you. How's that experience been? It was very, it's, first of all, the net of it, looking back, it's incredibly rewarding to be able to have your children work with you because for half the people, the kids couldn't possibly work with you because they want to get away from you. <laughs> you know, I mean, they want to get the hell as far away as they can from you and they want to get out of your life. They're tired of having you tell them what to do. And so it's very difficult to adjust to them, not only being your children, where you told them what to do, but basically then they become your associates and partners and you have to give them incredible freedom. Yeah. And of course, there's always tension because sure. they're always going to be your children. Yeah. When you get to be my age, they're still your children. Right. And occasionally you, you do, you step over the line and you, you say things that you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And they take it as as the son as opposed to as your cohort. Yep. And and so it's it's difficult, but if you can do it, it's wonderful. At the high point, how many employees did you have at the at the high point? At the high point, we had sixty two people. And at the low point, it, what did it go to? At the low point, we cut we cut back down to I believe it was either eleven or twelve, which wow. is what we have today. Yeah. So we went from 62 essentially down to 12. It took us a couple steps to get there. Sure. In the meantime, I put a number of, uh, I put a lot of money back into the firm. I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I'm talking not in the thousands, but in the millions. Yeah. But you can't support things if your business doesn't work doing what you're doing. Right. So at that point, you have to say, time out. What's our new strategy? We thought a lot about it. And we thought, you know, can we do it with who can we do with? How many people? And in any case, the people who've stayed with me, with us. By mm-hmm. the way, Palmer is now dead. Okay. He's three years older than me. So he 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 died about five or six years ago. So he's gone. So it's, it, Marvin and Palmer is Marvin and Palmer name, but not any longer in him being with us. Yeah. And he was a great friend and he was a great person, a great investor, but he's he's gone. In any case, we've we've restructured. And we have a new business and we financially are viable. And I've committed to making sure that I can provide sustenance no matter what kind of problems we run into. And I'm doing that. And I have to tell you, it is really, really fun being able to hire a grandson. Sure. I mean, I never thought my kids would work with me. Right. (laughs) It's hard to believe the two of the three of them are still working with me. Yep. And now you're on generation three. It's really, really hard to believe that I have a grandson. Yeah. We went up to New York a couple of weeks ago to Morgan Stanley. And uh, one of my old connections up there, it's a lady. And she really helped us. And then we had lunch in the, in the partner's dining room. And it, it reminded me so much of old times because I, I had a number of luncheons up there. That was my favorite firm on the street. And uh, it was great, though. Here I have my son my grandson and this old lady friend. Yeah. And, and Jesus, I'm just, I, you can't imagine the sentiments that go through your mind in terms of how, how special that really is. Yeah. That has to be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested. So you're 82 years old right now. Yeah. You're still working every day. Yeah. Uh, so six years ago, 
Yeah. Why didn't you just say, you know what? Screw this. It's, it's, you know, the, you've heard the old adage, if you find something you like, it doesn't work. Sure. And that's what I did. I found, yeah. I found a profession, like some people like being doctors or they like whatever they, whatever they find that's good for them. Yep. It's, it's, it's not work. It's, it is work. It provides you the ability to provide for your family and to do things for the community. But the biggest thing is you love it. Mm-hmm. And I still love it. And as long as I can keep my marbles, yeah, you never know how long that is. Sure. Because I mean, all kinds of my friends, that's the problem as you get older, is not that you get dumber, but but that your contacts leave you. Yeah. And they don't and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. The reason they don't come back is either because they retired and they're out, you know, they're somewhere doing something, or they're 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 dead. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so sad, but that's what happens as you get older. But I I believe that I would like to go with my boots on. It wouldn't bother me if if someday, hopefully 15 years from now, I'm at my desk and all of a sudden I keel <laughs> over because you know, I'd like to go that way because a few of my friends have. Yeah. One of my best friends who worked for Capital Group out in LA, that's how he went. He was having a conversation with somebody on Wall Street. And all of a sudden, the conversation—he didn't answer. He didn't answer the question, and this—this this, this was a lady, and she called up and she said, "I think maybe you ought to check on Mr. Kirby. Something's wrong." And they checked on him, and he was—he he was dead. He had a, you know, and and so I wouldn't mind going the same exact way. Yeah, I, it to me, it's very very honorable to basically do something that's called work. Yep. Most jobs, I don't care what kind of jobs there. Jobs, any job that is worthwhile is honorable. The person doing that job deserves your respect. That, I love it. I absolutely love it. That, that is, um, you know, the one thing I find interesting is that the more entrepreneurs I talk to, the more they don't, the word retirement, the idea of shutting it all down and just going to live in Florida all the time and, you know, playing pickleball or golf every day is, you know, doesn't really seem attractive to them. And then you always hear those stories about someone that worked so hard, they really enjoyed their career, and then they retired thinking that they would love it, and they pass away quickly after they retire. Because, like, you know, part of you dies when you, when, you, when you don't have, you know, work to look forward to that you really enjoy. Yeah. And it's not, I very much equate myself with being a doctor. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the doctors over a long period of time don't ever make mistakes. They do. Right. And some of the mistakes are deadly. Yeah. It's in our case as investors, occasionally you make mistakes that are maybe deadly to your career or to your client. Right. It's not that you never make them. Yeah. But when you do make a mistake, hopefully you learn something from it. Yeah. You don't just say, well, that was that was the luck of the draw. It's not the luck of the draw. You should there were signs there that should have told you to do something else. And if you didn't, you need in the future because it's going to happen again. Yep. It basically things recur. Yogi Berra was right. It is deja vu all All over again. He was right. You know, the names change, circumstance, but but the reactions of markets are the same. And you need to anticipate and be able to identify when you see something that was deadly the last time. You don't want to go there again. Yeah. You know, it's, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, I, I hear a lot when the market has downturns, like 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 what's going on right now. And people say, yeah. well, this time it's different. 
it's never really different. It's always, you know, the, the market goes up, it goes down and always has a reason associated with it. So what do you say to people that say this time's different? This is a different market than we've I, ever I, seen. I would say they're wrong. Yeah. I mean, yes, some of the circumstance, the circumstances always change. You know, Russia wasn't attacking Ukraine 10 years ago in the financial crisis. Or the, so circumstances change, but the principle of what markets look at and react to don't really change. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's different. I think the interest rates have been going back to normal. The central banks around the world are tightening. The reaction of markets to all of that normally is negative. Yep. And that, but once the market has discounted that, which generally takes, generally takes between six and twelve months for the market to discount it. Yeah. And this decline, by the way, started at the end of November, December last year. Sure. So we're already nine months into it. Yep. So, so what you should be looking for now is the market discounting the fact that earnings are going to be worse, but that interest rates at some point are going to level out. Mm -hmm. And the central banks at some point are going to quit tightening and they're going to start loosening. Yep. And that's what the market will discount because they're looking. The market is a forecasting mechanism. It doesn't look at the actual economy at the time. It looks in the future. That's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, it's like Wayne Gretzky, who always said that basically it's not where the puck is now. It's where it's going to be. Yep. You always and, want to be where the puck's going. And that's, and that's what the markets are. Yeah. In Wayne's case, it was a lot faster in terms of how it happened. But the markets are always looking out six to 12 months in terms of what are they discounting? Yeah, that's great. You know, uh, we're running out of time. So I wanted to ask you one last question. You, you have been throughout your life incredibly philanthropic. Uh, just talk about, you know, obviously building the, the wealth that you've had and, and how important is it to, to give back? And what are some of the causes that are really important to you? Well, I mean, there's nobody who can take care of everything. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me as a worthy citizen, and everybody wants to be a worthy citizen, they want to be upright, they want to be respected. And one of the things you need to do is help your fellow men in some fashion. And the fashion that I've chosen over the years is twofold. One, I was a coach. I okay. was literally a baseball coach for 13 years. Yeah. That's giving back. Yep. Second, secondly, I was on two, two boards. I was on the Tattle School Board for about 20 years. Okay. And I've been on the Wilmington University Board for about 40 years. Wow. And Wilmington University went from nothing. Sure zero, did. Zero. Yeah. They're the second biggest now in Delaware, but they provide a quality education for people who don't have the silver spoon. And I didn't have the silver spoon, so I relate to people yeah. who are working and going to school. And I've tried to do the best I can to help them become successful. And we've done a pretty good job so far. But that's great. You know, it's always a work in progress. Always a work in progress. But that's awesome that that you yeah. you know th that's important to you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm 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 just normal. I'm a yeah. normal I'm a normal American person who luckily has lived eighty two. Yeah. Hopefully on the way to 102, but, but I've lived to 82 and I got no regrets if they take me right now. Yeah. And, and uh, to me, as long as you've been a good citizen of this country and you, re you have respect for your family and your friends and your business friends as well, and just respect for America. America is a great place. 
Yes. Agreed. Very well said. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, to learn a little bit more about David and his firm, go to marvinandpalmer.com. Um, if you'd want to connect with me on the Untapped app, my username is brcarney7. To learn more about how my firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And to hear past episodes of the podcast, please go to happy-half-hour.com. All right, moment of truth, 2SP, mocha latte stout, excellent. It has Wawa coffee in it, which you can't go wrong with drinking a beer with Wawa coffee in it, right? I'll give it a, uh, I'll give it a four and a half out of five. Well done to the, to the gentleman at 2SP. David, I thank you so much for your time. I really, I could have talked to you for another hour. I really enjoyed our conversation. Brian, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. I, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. See you. Bye. Cheers.